You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Howdy, folks. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Patrick Bromley. Shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. This week we are looking at the 2001 film from prolific director Takashi Miike, Visitor Q. Written by Itaru Era, the film tells the story of a family in disarray. The unemployed father, a former newsman who is laid off after an unfortunate incident. The mother, a heroin addict who prostitutes herself for money to get a fix. The son, a victim of bullying who then bullies his own mother. And the daughter, who has left home to become a prostitute as well. Now, I'm not casting aspersions on sex work when I say that, but let's just say that things could be better for this family. Then the titular visitor Q shows up and things change. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers about this movie. We'll also be talking about Pasolini's Teorama, Ozan's sitcom, and probably a few more other films as well. So if you don't like spoilers, if you don't like movies, just turn off the podcast and don't ever come back. We don't want your kind here. Patrick, when was the first time you saw Visitor Q, and what did you think? The first time I saw Visitor Q was actually for the purposes of this podcast. It was a Mikkei, yeah, it was a Mikkei film that had always escaped me, and I was excited to check it out so that I could talk about it. My thoughts on it can be summed up in roughly four words: too close to home. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> it was. It was uh, it was like watching my own childhood played out on screen. No, it was a weird thing because I have capturing the Bromleys. I have uh, I have such a strange relationship with Mike. I would consider myself a fan of Mike, but then every time it's like a blank slate. Every time I go into one of his movies, because I don't know which Mike I'm going to get. And as I was watching Visitor Q. I'll admit I found myself a little bit hmm, irritated is too strong a word, but it just seemed like a film that was being sort of outrageous for the sake of being outrageous. And Mike certainly has that sort of anarchist streak in him. And then by the end, I was weirdly moved by the whole thing and haven't it, it, it's been sitting with me since I saw it and I've warmed to it considerably. 
I saw it maybe about 10 years ago. I was doing a deep dive into Mike for a project I was doing in some classes I was teaching on contemporary Asian cinema. And I was initially quite alienated by it. I really wasn't prepared to grant seriousness to some of the really shocking images of of abuse visited on the female body. And it took me quite a while before I was able to revisit the film and see it in something like the detached uh, context that scholars such as uh, Tom Mez and Fiona Giles and that wonderful essay you shared with us from A Gift of Loss to Self-Care we're willing to bestow on it. But my initial response was was complete alienation and annoyance. There's a particular way in which violence done to the helpless female body can be played for laughs that is particularly horrifying and alienating to me. And unless I'm rather sure that the filmmaker's have a different purpose, a higher purpose. There's a sense of of detached contemplation in a larger context that frames these images. I'm I'm often quite horrified. I had been putting this one off for a long time. I also have a very ambivalent relationship with Mike. I've seen I don't know, maybe a dozen or so of his films. And when it comes to Mike, that is just the tip of the iceberg. I described him as a prolific filmmaker. If people are unfamiliar with Takeshi Mike, he for a while was directing six, seven films a year, if not more. I think he was topping out at like, what, eight, nine films a year. And it was just insane to try to keep up with someone who produces that much work and then also, to your point, Patrick, of varying quality and of wildly different approaches, wildly different genres. For a while, he was kind of specializing in the gangster genre, where, and then he would show up and do a musical, or he would do a kid's film. Uh, so it was just, you never know what you're going to get with Mike, which is sometimes a delight and other times annoying. Take your pick, which one you want to go with, or it can be a mix of the two. I know that some people just swear by him uh, every year for the longest time. You were guaranteed one, if not two, Mike films at the Midnight Madness program up in uh, Toronto at the TIFF. Most of the time, I would end up seeing those and just say, what the hell? Especially because these films were being shown at midnight and a lot of them are really slow-paced, whereas others are balls-out crazy. I have to say that Visitor Q kind of falls more on the slower paced. I think that they could probably condense this down to about 45 minutes, maybe, and we'd be okay. At an hour and a half or so, it kind of wears out its welcome a little bit. This was one of those movies where I was really playing around with the speed settings and the VLC player, trying to get it to move a little bit faster. Well, here in Dallas, I'm very lucky to be located where the Asian Film Festival of Dallas, this amazing annual festival of contemporary East and South Asian films, plays at a sort of rotating set of venues. I initially saw some of Mike's more munificently budgeted 
elegantly laid out films such as Fudo, uh, The Next Generation, and Audition, and the first Dead or Alive film. So I didn't really get some of the really down and dirty, more exploitation cinema immersed uh, versions of his work until I'd already become a fan because of some of these more traditional, slickly, elegantly appointed genre films that had been being shown on the festival circuit. This and Audition both tend to show up in those 50 most shocking movie type lists. So I was really expecting something way more out there than it is. And I won't say that this is the run of a mill melodrama, family melodrama, but maybe I fell asleep during Audition or something, but I don't remember Audition being that shocking. And this one I don't also think was that shocking. I found most of the outrageous stuff to be very, very comical. And I don't know if that just shows the kind of person I am. Maybe I skew towards the sick, but I was a little taken aback at the beginning when we are introduced to two of our main characters, really one of our main characters, because the daughter character is hardly in this film. Her presence kind of looms over the rest of the movie, but we're introduced to the father character, and he is trying to do this kind of journalistic thing where he's interviewing a prostitute to find out more about comfort women in Japan, and only to for us to learn pretty early on via a title card, have you ever done it with your dad, that this is his daughter, and it turns from interview to sexual encounter fairly easily. Now I can see where that would really put off people, but at the same time, we don't really know these characters, so it was just like, okay, yeah, this is a dad and his daughter. So I was just like, okay, that's kind of gross, but whatever. It wasn't like super shocking to me. And then many more of the shocking things, like I said, as they go along, they get funnier and funnier. I think the next, the, the time where I was truly kind of taken aback, probably as you were, Kevin, was when we go on to the next, well, actually this, the, the two segments later, which is the have you ever hit your mom segment where we see the son beating up his mother and just being a complete shit to her. And that's the moment where I was just like, oh, this is kind of gnarly. But otherwise, most of the incidents in the movie I was laughing at, other than maybe when there's a rape which causes a murder. But even then, I it's just kind of showed me what a loser the dad is, that he can't even do that the right way, that he ends up murdering this woman that he wants to have sex with. I, I think it's kind of a, a fool's errand to go into a movie expecting to be shocked, because if your expectations are that high, you're probably going to end up being disappointed. I end up sort of adjusting my expectations when it's a Mike movie, because again, you know, to, to Kevin's point, we don't know which Mikkei we're going to get. Are we going to get, you know, 13 Assassins Mikkei or are we going to get uh, Ichi the Killer Mikkei? And this is certainly much more Ichi the Killer mode. I wouldn't say that what they were showing me on screen was particularly shocking, even though I know that it is shocking, but I just sort of buckle up before I press play and I know that anything I see is probably going to be pretty outrageous, you know, and that's one of my frustrations sometimes with Mike is that he's a filmmaker who seems to revel in sort of rubbing our noses and things that he feels are transgressive and, and are, you know, transgressive. I don't mean to say that they're not, but sometimes I feel it's not to a purpose, you know, if the movie crossed a line for me and I don't know that it did because I did feel 
fairly emotionally removed from it, particularly as I was watching it. As I said, I, I lived with it for a little while and there were certain things that started to resonate with me. Um, I was emotionally removed enough from it as in it that I wasn't actually shocked. But when we get not to jump ahead too much again, but when we get to that final sequence and the father is having sex with the dead body and Kevin, as you were saying, it, it's sort of played for laughs because the father's performance is is kind of broad and there's a whole shit gag and it's they're using you know essentially the the rape of this naked female corpse for laughs and that to me was where you know there's bad taste and then there's just bad taste that falls flat and when it falls flat like that that's i think when i really would get offended if i cared more than i did to me, I think that was the moment where I was like, all right, I, I've had enough of this. And then the movie wraps up after that, so it's okay. My initial response uh, was that that was completely gratuitous and, as you said, a sort of can you top this sort of sequence. And as I thought about it more and I read some of the uh, critical writing on it, I, I think he's, he, or at least the screenwriter, uh, has – but some bigger fish to fry, which I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about it in relation to uh, its source films and some of the uh, social aspects of contemporary Japan that it very, very broadly uh, references, I think. Yeah, at the heart of this film, it is a family melodrama, for lack of a better term. This is the story. If you take everything about this movie and dial it back, you know, it's what, at an 11 right now, let's take it back to a 5 or maybe even a 4, where we've got an out-of-work salaryman dad, we've got this put-upon mom whose daughter has left home to become a prostitute, whose son is being abused at school and then turns his frustrations upon her. You've got, you know, Oedipal relationship. Uh, or more of an Electra type of thing with uh, the dad and the daughter and them exploring this at the beginning and then just a whole lot of no no uh, communication going on between the mom and the dad whatsoever. They just are, uh, they can be in the same room and they barely ever speak to one another. They barely look at one another. The dad is very interested in one of his former co-workers. He wants to impress her. So, I mean, if you were to just describe this movie as I'm doing it right now without all of the meekiness to it, it would just be like, okay, yeah, this plays out. And, you know, you can cast Helen Mirren and, and Tom Hardy's the son and just, you know, start, let, let's put this in the art house and maybe we'll get a couple Oscar dots here. Who knows? You know, give them some pretty costumes and then we'll at least get one uh, throwaway Oscar for that. You know, no offense to costume designers. I know you do a hard job, but it's one of those like, oh, well. We'll give this one film a particular nod, and it'll be costumes. So you take that, and then you spin up that dial, and it becomes this really crazy thing. And we will talk about kind of more the dialed-down version when we talk about um, Pasolina's Teorama. This one takes some of those items in there and just blows them up. Uh, we should probably talk about the actual visitor cue, because he is kind of... I don't want to say he's the impetus for this stuff. He seems almost more the catalyst for things. He actually gives the father kind of a real wake-up call by hitting him in the back of the head with a rock. And that's kind of what starts the father on his new journey. And I would say, if anything, the father is kind of our main character, but the mom is pretty close behind 
And the mom is really who we care about or I care about as we watch this film. The dad is more there for last. He's one of those incompetent father figures that we see so often in so many films. One of the things that really came to characterize the V cinema era, and it, it really characterizes a lot of high output film industries in general, is this fluidity of genre ca- uh, categories and the the willful uh, stirring together of seemingly disparate and contradictory genre elements and character types from uh, uh, from from one type of film to another. I mean, if you think about you know Full Metal Yakuza, it's it's basically RoboCop as a Japanese gangster, you know, and so these sort of high concept underpinnings that are then built upon with greater or lesser degrees of skill by various filmmakers is kind of what this mode of filmmaking is. And I think one of the things that makes a film like Visitor Q so distinctive is we have characters who seem to have walked in from a different kind of movie. You know, they're, they're in the, they're in the wrong, they're in the wrong story. I just made a few notes about some of the different elements of uh, Japanese film genres and production trends and stuff that we see here. And of course, Mike, you mentioned at the top, you know, most perspicaciously that uh, the salaryman film, this idea of this this uh, of this white collar male worker discovering as he gets older that he is neither a success in his job, nor is he an effective spouse to his partner or parent to his children. And of course, in the post bubble years, you know, of the 1990s, the salary man takes a particularly nihilistic turn. Uh, if you remember one of the subplots in uh, in Battle Royale is, is the, the main character's father was an unemployed salary man who committed suicide on the son's birthday. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the genres at work here. Then there's the uh, the, the Japanese really into their moms, right? The hahamono genre, uh, dramas about mothers and their children. Uh, the fact that mothers often take on uh, an extraordinary and inappropriate amount of emotional labor of the family, which I think this film is a fabulous sort of extension and parody of. If you've ever seen Naruse's, uh, Amikio Naruse's mother from 1952, uh, uh, we, we follow the evolving uh, perceptions of the of the family, the mother, the matriarch of the family, uh, by the uh, the college age daughter, uh, you know, and and then there's the melodrama about sex workers and how they came to be in the industry. This is basically half of the entire output of Japanese cinema since its inception. But we can think of Kenzie Mizuguchi's you know, many, many workings on the theme. Uh, Naruse's on When a Woman Ascends the Stairs from 1960 about an aging bar hostess, which is really, really cool. Uh, Suzuki's Gate of Flesh from 64 and Keikumai's Sandakan uh, number eight. These are just some of the more famous, you know, examples of this, this sort of, you know, how did sex workers get to be where they are? And then, you know, that, that shades into the pink films about, you know, teenage female sex workers, you know, uh, as I put in my notes here, how much time we got to list all of those. And then, you know, there's uh, this film came out right at the time of their uh, of a ton of contemporary youth dramas and comedies about this group of helpless loser 
teenage college age and beyond sons of middle class families uh, who live at home and have no ambition, no sex drive. They don't drink. They don't do anything. They're just surrounded by comic books and manga and internet porn. These are the species commonly known as otaku, and this is pretty much everything you need to know about them. If you remember that first establishing shot uh, of the son's bedroom in, in Visitor Q, we see all of his neatly laid out canes that he beats you know, his mother with, and then all of the manga and porno videos that are meticulously uh, organized on the shelf you know, so I think one of the one of the things that makes the film really, really interesting to me anyway, is that it really deftly and subversively introduces and integrates many of these different character types and uh, plots and stuff from all of these different genres and production trends. And we really kind of don't know where the hell we're going to go. I mean, uh, there are tons and tons of Japanese movies about a teenage girl who realizes that her parents are in a loveless relationship. That's one of like, that's one of the dominant plot devices in contemporary Japanese films. And of course we enter this later after she's already left the house. As I slowly came to be less alienated by the film, it was largely a result of thinking about the way the movie was combining all of these disparate and contradictory elements in a new and genuinely subversive way. And visitor Q looks like he stepped out of a different movie as well. He seems like he's a refugee from Ichi the Killer or any number of gangster films. The way that he's dressed kind of like a rock and roll guy. I mean, doesn't he wear leather pants in this movie? And a Hawaiian shirt. If somebody wears leather pants, they're up to no good. Just kind of comes in. Like I said, he hits the dad on the back of the head with a brick. He ends up later on hitting the daughter with a brick. And kind of by doing that, he's kind of realigning the family. It's like they're out of whack and he's using the bluntest of instruments to kind of get them back on track. Now, it takes a lot longer for the dad to get back on track. And he also helps out the mom, in a way, by making her, I don't want to say a sexual being again, because she is a sexual being. She's in this loveless relationship with her husband. She goes out, she prostitutes herself for money so that she can get heroin. But I wouldn't say that the relationship she has with these men that she meets for for cash are necessarily very loving, nor does she feel very fulfilled. But it's definitely after Visitor Q kind of has his way with her. He doesn't necessarily have sex with her. And to me, he just kind of finds the right button and pushes it and shows her that she is this orgasmic creature. And really, I mean, we can't talk about the mother character without talking about mothers with a capital M and just the whole idea of the lactation and how he starts her lactating and after that she never really stops. I think that her two hobbies of heroin and putting together puzzles of these idyllic um, idealized genre noir portraits of women are a displaced sexual energy. We can see her with that desire for the the amniotic bliss of the heroin fix and and putting together these, these little puzzle pieces to put these beautiful, like glowing, you know, pictures of the, the young French women at the turn of the previous century. You know, I think we can see that those are displaced 
exemplifications of her erotic longing. And there's a, you know, a fairly common trope. The most recent one I can think of is probably uh, one of the worst movies to be mentioned on this or any podcast. And that's Jason Reitman's Labor Day from a couple of years ago where Josh Brolin plays the drifter. And instead of making Kate Winslet lactate, they like make peach pie together or peach cobbler or something ridiculous. I don't know. My crust is a very forgiving thing. Forks. I make all kinds of mistakes, but don't forget the salt. But it's a fairly common trope, this idea of the drifter who comes through town and awakens something within the woman, you know, and Mike is clearly having fun with that and sort of mm-hmm. taking it to its illogical extreme, I guess I should say. And, uh, you know, obviously the the puzzle stuff, as you had said, Kevin, plays a big role. I mean, it's not that subtle a metaphor in terms of, you know, this family that needs to be put back together. And, you know, right. he leads her into the room with the puzzle because he's going to put everything back together. We've said a couple times now that he he kind of awakens the the father character by smacking him on the head with a rock. And yet I don't know that the father really changes from that point on. I mean, he he's a catalyst in the sense that that's sort of the moment that he enters their lives. But I don't really feel like the father really changes until that moment where he's cutting up his assistant with the mother, that that the mother is essentially the the moon around which everyone revolves. And she's sort of the one who ultimately ends up changing everyone again visitor q is as you had said mike the catalyst for all of this but i've been back and forth on how you know the the getting hit with the rock awakens the dad and i i'm not really seeing evidence of it i think the ending of the film which i'm sure we'll talk about later uh explains or at least attempts to explain uh that that his role as patriarch is a role in which he was massively miscast and that he is in fact the child. Right. And he comes to accept that. Yeah. This really does show, uh, you know, last hurrah for the matriarchy (laughs) kind of thing. It's just like she, there, sitting in the center of this with the husband on the one breast and the daughter on the other breast and the son who has now sworn that he is going to be a good student and study while he literally swims in her breast milk, I mean, he makes breast he's, milk, he's not coagulated lacking. breast milk angels. Yeah, right. He's he's not he's not nursing from her, but he is lying in a pool of her breast milk, breast milk and vaginal discharge. Well, of course, yes. Okay, those who are really interested in the excellent Tom Mays interview that Mike does as one of the components of this podcast episode will be quite taken with the fact that he stops interacting with everyone to study for a college entrance exam. I don't know if the father is that dynamic of a character. He does not necessarily change that much from the beginning to the end. I think he does change at the end, but He's definitely the most busy of the characters, especially trying to recapture what he once had. And I appreciate that we have that flashback. I mean, it's kind of a flashback, but to show his utter humiliation that he was out on the street trying to do one of these man on the street or kid on the street interviews. And because he's, I guess to your point, uh, Kevin, about him being a child, he's fascinated with children. He's fascinated with youth culture who once killed my dog, and he wants to 
connect with them, but he's always standing to the side until he's acted upon with his own microphone <laughs> by one of these thugs on the street. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about the way that, I mean, the, the father is, for the most part, an observer. And he sits there and he watches his own son being beaten up. And rather than do anything about it, he just sits and watches. He can't act upon any of this stuff. And it's interesting, too, that as we're watching this as viewers, we're really being addressed very prominently in these three title cards that we have near the beginning of the film where it's have you ever done it with your dad have you ever been hit in the head have you ever hit your mom and so we're kind of not being implicated but we're being asked this we're being addressed we're being brought into the story that way and uh, there's that kind of way that we are observing and then there's also observations in the story i mentioned the father watching the son and then even Visitor Q, when he is there traveling around with the dad, he's always taking mm-hmm. stuff and he's kind of acting as the, the cameraman for this quote-unquote news story that the father's trying to put together. We're trying to put together, he's basically exploiting his own son. He's trying to put together a story about bullying and he wants to use his son as like kind of this test case in this. It's interesting too that he's, that Visitor Q is shooting this all on home video because this whole movie Yes, it was early digital video, but it looks like absolute garbage. It looks like an old VHS tape. So as we're watching this movie, we're constantly, or at least I'm constantly, being reminded of the limitations of the technology at the time. And I just keep thinking, this looks like a home movie, and the way that is being shot is very cinema verite. So it just feels like we're kind of thrust into, like I just popped this thing into my VCR rather than you know watching a, an ABI file or whatever. Well, again, I, I think it lends the uh, the movie a certain immediacy and it removes a filter that we sort of automatically have when we are watching film uh, for whatever reason, because it's part of our lives from the mm-hmm. time we grow up. It's in our homes. We just respond differently to the aesthetic of video. There's a familiarity to it. There's a we automatically accept it as more real. It, it it removes sort of that filter of fantasy that, you know, film has. And I thought it was interesting too. I think Mike talks about it, Mike, in one of the interviews that you passed along where he says that there was that movement like Lars von Trier making dancer in the dark where they were shooting on video for movie screens, you know, and that it was a very different aesthetic than what he was doing, which was I'm shooting on video to release these on video to, for just right. people to put on at home. And I also think that this is one of the earlier films to really sort of deal with the idea of reality television. It had only been around a few years at this point. I mean, I know it's predated by, of course, Ed TV and uh, the Truman Show. I just wanted to get an Ed TV mention and the Truman Show in America. But, you know, not a, not a ton of films had been made that sort of dealt with that type of storytelling, the sort of fallout from, you know, that started with the real world on MTV. Um, So I thought that was a really kind of interesting aspect to it because so much of the movie is about watching, you know, being the observer. And from the very opening moments, we are just put in sort of that first person 
position uh, because the father is not seen on camera. He's interviewing his daughter, but we are essentially the eyes of the camera. Um, but she's also taking pictures of him, which we right. cut. Yeah, that's right. a nice effect that he's doing. To go back to uh, reality TV, I mean, yes, we've had kind of faux reality. We've had TV documentaries, American Family. We've had, uh, you know, mockumentaries. Don't you diss on American so Family, long. dude. Lance Ladd was my <laughs> hero when I was in junior high. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not dissing on it at all. I'm just saying that when it comes to reality television, the the, the current movement of reality television, which may be over as far as being a movement, but I would say as far as the overall, the impact that we've had based upon reality TV, for me, the, the biggest stake in the ground, it, or in this case, the biggest torch in the ground is Survivor. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, really took the world by storm. And wouldn't you know that that was uh, first aired March 31st, I think it was, 2000. And this movie comes out March 17th, 2001. Mm-hmm. So this really, you know, it's it's hitting it right there. To, to your point, Patrick, this is right there on that, that first wave of reality TV. Well, also, it's important to remember that, that this huge push toward these unscripted, quote-unquote, reality shows were, was in the middle of a very bitter writer's strike in which writers were trying to establish some kind of equitable system for residual payments, uh, knowing that online distribution was going to tremendously increase the amount of revenue that the uh, distribution companies were getting from their material, and there had been no provision made for anything like this for the writers to be compensated to this. So the reality TV was kind of a uh, an American uh, attempt to uh, to basically break the screenwriters guild. Uh, and and the the fascinating thing to me about Visitor Q is it's the most conspicuously threadbare of Mike's films from this period. And he was able to turn this shot on video cheesiness into an artistic asset rather than a liability by incorporating it in, you know, into the, the plot in a really remarkable way without having to resort to that hoary cliche of the framing stuff is shot on 16 or 35 millimeter film. And then the the home video bits are shot on video that are later, you know, blown up to film for, you know, projection in theaters and stuff like that, that he just went ahead and embraced this poverty of means, this poverty of representation and actually turned it into part of what the movie was about. And I think that's really remarkable. I love low budget, shitty, exploitative Japanese movies filled with gore and nudity, but it never fails to disappoint me when I sit down to encounter one and find that it's shot on video and not on film. It just, it just seems lesser than, and in this film, Mike was able to take this, Poverty of means, this low budget, certainly no one was going to pay a ton of money to have a story this alienating and offensive to be shot in 
35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and, and he turned it into part of what the film was about. And I really think that's an extraordinary artistic impulse. And he was really, really able to give the project a certain amount of artistic integrity that it could not have had otherwise. And when we talk about the luminous cinematography in Teorema, right? You know, like that, that, that amazing color that we get in that film. This is uh visitor Q is a million miles away from that. And he embraces that rather than tries to disguise it. I mean, I guess this kind of plays into, obviously this was V cinema and video was a, a much more accepted means of creating these movies. I don't want to say films and distributing them. Of course, if anything, it kind of almost reminds me of going a little bit further back in the past uh, to a, a, a longer tradition of Japanese um, filmmaking. And I was reminded a little bit here and there of the guinea pig films. You know, you brought up gore on video and it's just like you can't get more gory or more video-y than the guinea pig series. That's a great, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's spot on as a precursor to these and as a possible commercial model for how that poverty of means can be used to commercially exploit this sensational material. You mentioned the gore and there are just brief moments of gore in here. I would say that even the dismemberment of the body, I can't even remember any gore in that scene. I just remember the gore and the outrageousness uh, and I don't mean that in the shocking type of outrageousness, but more in the cartoonish sense of it when it came to the revenge against the bullies and how mom and dad finally unite and take these bullies down. And they don't do it with a harsh word to them or to their parents. They end up doing it with implements of destruction. And, you know, I particularly remember a, uh, a uh, screwdriver to the head kind of thing. So it's just like those moments. I mean, that is pure V cinema to me, those crazy moments of just extreme violence. Uh, it also helped that I was watching this in fast forward. So it made it even more <laughs> cartoonish for me. So it was just like, wow. Okay. And it comes so unexpectedly and just, you know, you expect them to maybe chase these bullies off, but when they just murder them all and it kind of adds to their ever growing pile of dead bodies, I was very pleased by that. Is it bad for me to say that I actually prefer the gore effects in this one to the digital blood that he used in Zatoichi? No, I, I, I would never prefer digital blood to anything. I can't stand digital blood. It takes and it was me just so freaky in that movie. Yeah. I mean, even when I, you know, I'll see a movie that tries to, I remember watching Everly, which was a movie I liked and it's trying to mostly do practical, but every once in a while it enhances with like a digital blood. And it's like immediately I'm like, Oh fuck, there it goes. I mean, I think they did a really good job in something like Logan. I was like, okay, I'm not really noticing it, but you got to use it sparingly. I mean, we know how Zatoichi was right there with Lone Wolf and Cub when it came to those geysers of blood shooting out. And when you do that with a digital effect, it's just, oh, man, just give me something practical. They could do practical effects in 1968, 1970, so why can't you do it in 2007 or whenever that movie came out? I don't know if it's just to be cheaper, to move more quickly, or if it's to give them a little bit of flexibility, to, you know, to 
trim it down, you know, like, well, maybe we don't want so much. Maybe we want to get a different rating and then they can alter it in post. I don't know. I think it's also a testament to Mike's control of tone, which is maybe a weird way to describe Mike because his move, his movies seem so tonally out of control and yet they're not, they are, you know, expertly controlled chaos because when we get to that moment at the end of the film where they are murdering kids, I read it as triumphant, you know, and it's it, because of the way that Mike kind of builds to that moment, the way he shoots that moment where it's a connection between the husband and wife for the first time, really, in the course of the film. The glee on their faces as they do it, the sort of energy of the whole thing. And I was only watching it at regular speed, but yet there was still energy that it is a triumphant moment instead of a disturbing moment where adults are murdering children i think that's a testament to you know mike gets us to where he wants to get us and you don't necessarily realize that that's what he's doing until he gets you there and uh that's that's not an easy skill for a filmmaker to have well mace points out in his chapter that this is the moment where the father acknowledges his oneness with the son that they are that they are both humiliated failed men and i thought that was kind of an interesting interesting point that he raised um i looked at you know some of the stuff that happened in the second half of the film as as the father is this creature of the media who who is this sort of alan partridge like figure you know desperate to get his next uh show started uh still on some level pining after the news reader lady that he was fucking what maybe two or three years before uh and always filming the stuff around him i i imagine that that this scene with the revenge on the bullies and then the later sort of necrophile sex scene in the in the greenhouse he was trying to enact these very specific cinematic inflections of of masculine potency and mastery in the case of of this scene where they kill all the kids it's the the chambara you know sword master right that you know can can vanquish a dozen opponents because of his extraordinary mastery of the of the sword and then the sex scene with the dead body in the greenhouse he's sort of moving her into all of these different positions as as if he's this hyper virile porn performer you know and and you know i think there's a one of the reasons that the end of the film in which he is recast as this helpless infant i think one of the reasons that 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 moment is so powerful is we've essentially run him through all the possible models of masculine competence uh economic sexual martial psychological and he's failed at all of them and so all we all the only role that he's left is to to you know suckle at the nourishing teat of his wife because he is at least as much of an infant as any of the children that he has sired i like that he thinks he's such a coxman that he can make this woman wet after she's dead, only to find out that she has shit herself um, 
because our, our muscles are loosening up right before they tighten up into rigor mortis. And that he gets his cock caught in her uh, now clenched vagina like a like a like a, 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 a junkyard dog uh, having sex with something way too big for his own size, you know. And then that scene, which should be utter humiliation, becomes a bonding scene between him and his wife, and especially that she ends up giving him some of her heroin to relax his dick and let it pop right out of <laughs> the swimming. And I love the pop sound, too. The first thing that he does is call for her help when he fails in his necrophile rape. It's really quite remarkable. That's actually the funniest moment in the film. Imagine a necrophilic, adulterous rape going horribly wrong and then turning your head, shouting over your shoulder for your wife's assistance. That's pretty much as low as it gets, at least I mean, I'm, you can go lower, but I just can't go there without hallucinogens, I guess. <laughs> the thing about the bullies, too, is I'm uh, I'm glad that the parents are defending their son by murdering these, these young men. But they're also defending their sanctity of their own house. Because when these bullies, yes, they attack the son directly very often, if not on a daily basis. But they also attack the house. And you know, the son attacks the house. I mean, there are gouges, there are you know screens that have been punched out, and I'm pretty sure that's the son doing that. But then there are frontal assaults on the house by these boys who are shooting off all these fireworks at the house to the point where they're breaking windows, where fireworks are coming in. I mean, it's basically a war scene when they're trying to have dinner and all these fireworks are going off around them, and so that they defend. Their son, yes, but they're defending the house finally and putting an end to all of this nonsense by murdering these bullies. I was very happy with that as well because it just, again, shows that unification of the family unit, that things are kind of coming back to what they need to be, that they are working together. Well, you know, one of the ways in which they bully the child is they the the son the teenage son is they make him pull his pants down and try to get him to shit on command and uh anyone who's ever uh uh visited uh, say an airport uh john at four in the morning sleep deprived knows that to do this on command is not the easiest thing uh and of course that calls forth both the uh, the anal rape of the father with his own microphone in the in the flashback sequence, but but most most profoundly, I think, the excretion of the female corpse onto the father as he's as he's having sex with it. You know, when I went back and looked at the film, one of the redeeming qualities, one of the things that uh, that really helped me see some of these scenes of, of violence and violation of the female body as taking place in a larger context was this intricate series of, of motifs and repeated elements of various kinds of bodily processes and the various social taboos that they evoke and reinforce. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I think that that, uh, again, all of those parallels between the rituals of sexual humiliation that the father and the son, uh, endure and the fact that the mother is the person who is at the end of the film able to come forward and, it's through the 
ebullient and celebratory embrace of her irrepressible bodily processes that the family is is regenerated you know once again i just want to uh uh again thank you michael for uh hipping us to the wonderful article by fiona giles called uh from the gift of loss to self-care uh where she points out that the mother is the only provider of food in the film whether she's bringing in food from the kitchen or she's providing this food through her body and that and that 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 body process really does stand apart from all of the others in the film you know we could say that there are films that really reflect and evoke and exploit the horror of the body and all of its gushy processes and stuff but i think this film really takes a step back from that and says there are some bodily processes that uh we'd be a a sight worse if they didn't exist so uh once again uh that business about the body humor i think the film it has worked out how it sees all of these things in a very, very thoughtful, intelligent, almost anthropological way, which upon repeated viewings made the scenes of bodily violation to me seem part of a sustained meditation rather than just these moments of, of exploitive sensationalism and misogyny for that matter. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Tom Mess, the author of Agitator, the films of Takashi Miike, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 4, The Robin of Sherwood Method. Remove the character from the scripts and replace him with an entirely similar character. Create a highly elaborate scenario that puts the new character into the same situation as the original. The transition is completed when the replacement character adopts the same name as his predecessor. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts 
go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. How did you become a fan of Asian films? Probably the main culprit there would be the Rotterdam Film Festival. I mean, Rotterdam is my hometown, so obviously I grew up with that festival, and they have, you know, even today still, so many new uh, Japanese films, Korean films, Hong Kong films, you know, you name it, Chinese films. And uh, that's that's basically where I would discover new stuff. And I would go to the festival every, it's usually January, February, when it's really cold and windy in Rotterdam, so it's nice to be inside watching movies. And this stuff where I just, just, just the place where I would discover stuff, especially Japanese films it was like, you know, the early nineties with Kitano and Sakamoto coming out. It was a really exciting time. And how did you decide to start writing about these films? Basically, I was just a fan and I was watching, uh, films at festivals and stuff on video. Um, and felt like I had like ideas about it that I could articulate. And I just started writing stuff down and it was sort of like, okay, you know, friends were sort of like, hey, this is pretty good. So I thought, okay, great, wonderful. And then with a couple of, just as, as I got out of college, with a couple of friends, I set up this website where each of us could sort of do what we wanted to do. And one guy was into design and the other guy was into fashion and I was into movies. So that's what I wrote about. And from there on in, started writing for some magazines and then really specializing, I mean, specializing in Japanese films particularly came uh, in early 2000, again, at the Rotterdam Film Festival, because they had a huge program of new Japanese cinema as a kind of celebration of the 400th anniversary of, uh, of ties between Holland and Japan. And uh, so this was a huge program and a really great eye-opener. And they had the world's first retrospective of Kinji Fukasaku's films, for example. So that was really amazing. And they had three Mike films, and I had never heard of Mike before. And uh, that was Audition and Dead or Alive and Ley Lines. And obviously, <laughs> I was not the only one who was greatly uh, impressed by those films. Once you see your first Mike, how do you go about tracking down more and seeing more? I got really lucky that I saw I saw it at a film festival that had a lot of Japanese guests that year, so I could sort of get to talk to a few people and share my enthusiasm. And there was this one producer who was working for uh, the Nikatsu Studio at the time, and he said like, "Oh man, if you like uh, Dead or Alive, I'm going to send you a movie of Mikes that you're going to love." And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got this VHS tape in the mail from Japan with like a, a, a sort of semi-bootleg copy of Full Metal Yakuza. And this this was in uh, early 2000, so way before there was any DVD available of this film. And I watched it at home, and it was an uh, amazing, amazing movie. And then shortly after that, I took my first trip to Japan. And obviously there, I, I started searching out Mika films that, you know, that would, would just be available on like ex-rental VHS tapes. And I brought a lot of them home. Do you know how to speak Japanese? I do now as a sort of like colloquial Japanese is fine. You know, I'm not going to be an interpreter for a Japanese director or anything, but colloquial Japanese now is okay. And how did Agitator come about? Agitator came about really because I was watching all these films that I had brought home from Japan. 
And I started noticing things like, okay, hey, this is kind of similar to what he was doing in that other movie. And, you know, and these things started, you know, popping up fairly regularly. These consistencies in terms of, you know, the style he was using or, uh, uh the, the topics he was talking about. And that's where I sort of got the idea, like, you know, there's, there is a sort of, sort of an auteurist thing happening here and that, that nobody knows about because nobody has, has had the chance to see these earlier films. And from there on in, it was just, you know, test, testing those, uh, those impressions by, by getting hold of more films. And as I started watching him, I was going like, okay, I, I, I noticed patterns here and I started writing stuff down and that eventually became the book. I know that the book isn't necessarily a biography, but there are some biographical elements to it. Can you tell me how Mike got into filmmaking? Kind of by accident, really. He was kind of an underachiever as a, as a, as a teenager. He didn't want to go to any sick uh, college or anything that had uh, an entrance exam, which is basically the universal rule in Japan. So he couldn't go to university. So he went. He ended up at this vocational school for uh, for film and broadcasting that just accepted anybody, basically. And this is the school in Yokohama that is that was founded by Shohei Imamura, you know, the famous filmmaker who won uh, Golden Palm a couple of times for *The Ballad of Narayama* and *The Eel*, etc. You know, he just he didn't want to. He didn't really want to do, you know, spend a lot of effort on anything. So he went to school for a while, and he didn't really feel at home there. So he just stopped going. And then at some point, uh, these production assistants for uh, uh, a TV series came to the school and said, "You know, we need we need a student to work on our TV show for free. Who do you have available?" And basically, they sent it. You know, they sent them over to Mike because he was never there, so he didn't do anything at the school. And they figured, oh, he's free. And that's essentially how it happened. After he'd done that very first job, which he himself said he was terrible at, um, nevertheless, the people he was working with were moving straight on to another production, and that just took him along. You know, in Japan, these kinds of things are, are organized in in teams and groups. And once you're part of a group, you sort of like move from one production to another. So he was he was part of the group, even though he was just a beginner and wasn't really doing very well. So they just took him along, and that just, you know, continued. And on the second job, he was paid. And then he went on to the third and the fourth, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really one thing that led to another. And he just kind of naturally climbed up the ranks from being a, uh, a production assistant to eventually being an assistant director. And by then, it was the early 90s, and he was sort of like one of the main assistant directors now of Shohei Imamura. And uh, in the early 90s, this whole new wave of straight-to-video filmmaking came up that became almost instantly successful. And they needed lots of directors to make all these movies every year. And uh, so he was asked to direct the film. And then he was asked to direct another film. So it's always like other people took him along or other people asked him to do stuff. And he just said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And that's how he became a filmmaker. Did he learn his accelerated shooting style by doing all of these direct-to-video films? It's partially because of having worked in television on, on production crews for so long, which uh, also you have very little time to do anything. And most of the time, he says that, you know, there were freelance crews and there were studio crews. And the studio crews also looked down on the freelance crews that would give them as many, you know, of the, of the, the rotten jobs as possible. So the freelance crews had to do more work than the studio crews. So. I think from there already he was used to just doing a lot of work in very little time. And then, yeah, the straight-to-video films is just, I mean, from the start, he was making uh, two two films a year, then three, then four, then five. So um, it's, I think it's just been his routine all along. 
And nowadays he's down to two films a year, which is for his is for him is kind of a leisurely pace. But uh, he's getting older too, so maybe it suits him now. Having seen some of his work, and I don't know if there's anybody who's seen all of his work, maybe you, I was very surprised reading your book. I thought that he was writing and directing all of this stuff, but he's just, you call him a director for hire. Yes. I mean, he started working on scripts in recent years, but in terms of proper script writing, you know, he never used to do that. I mean, if you make four or five films a year, I mean, you have no time to also write the scripts. Also, by the way, uh, that low-budget sort of genre video movie-making works, usually the script is the first thing, or at least the basic story is the first thing that's ready, and then they start casting it. They start contacting one or two of the major stars who sort of have a, have name value. And then when the star is attached, they start working on a full screenplay, and once that's done, they go and find a director. So it's just the workings of uh, of low-budget genre filmmaking in Japan that just didn't really give the director a chance to to rewrite anything, unless you know you're somebody like Yoshi Kurosawa, who already had sort of a name as a, as a writer director, then he would rewrite stuff. But Mike didn't. So any any rewriting he did, he would do like on the set as they were shooting. You know, he would just shoot it differently from the way it was written. Well, Mike really puts a fine point on the whole idea of auteurism, because here you are finding similarities between his films, even though he is not the writer of them, just the director. And I hate to use the word just, but he is directing them and not the writer-director combo. And there's another element in that he really uh, welcomes a lot of like participation and ideas from all his crew and cast members. So if pe- people come up with ideas while they're filming, then he's uh, really likely to use them. So his films are very much collaborative efforts in that sense. He also he calls himself the arranger himself the arranger of his films um, rather than their auteur. You know, in the end, he's the one who, from uh, the, the 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 shooting scripts all the way through to the editing, uh, he's the one who's constantly involved in the film. You know, in the end, it is I feel very much Mike's Mike's movie. What are some of those themes that he likes to explore in his films? He tends to really like stories that deal with people who are kind of outsiders who don't really belong anywhere, and so you you see that in a lot of the characters in his films who sort of, who are often immigrants or uh, the children of immigrants who are still sort of stigmatized within society, and he tends to focus a lot on on these issues of identity and belonging. So then sort of ob- almost obviously you come to a situation where, you know, certain people who, who are outcasts kind of find each other and form these groups and they tend to sort of like, you know, go into these adventures together and usually they don't end up well. So yeah, they're really exciting sort of genre movies and exciting stories like gangster movies and action movies and such. But in the end, you sort of have this always this kind of sad undertone because you're dealing with people who don't really fit into society and society doesn't really want them. And then usually the, the outcome tends to be quite tragic. So that's a pattern that uh, that recurred, especially in his films uh, from the 90s and into the early 2000s. This episode is about uh, Visitor Q and... It seems that he deals with, you were talking about outsiders, and this family that is at the center of Visitor Q seems to be very much outside of the norm. Yes, yes and no, in a way. I mean, Visitor Q, I mean, it's 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 kind of a satire, so it really, like, enlarges, uh, like, social groups, family units, and the kind of problems that, you know, social problems that families are involved with and struggle with in Japan. 
So they're kind of typical in that sense, but you know they completely they all sort of like completely fail at what they're supposed to do. So uh, they kind of you know even if, whether it's in the family or at their job or whatever, they're, they're kind, most of them are complete failures. So they're out sort of like outsiders in that sense. Yes. Where do you think the actual character of Visitor Q comes from? That's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a sort of a, a, a classic case of introducing a, a foreign elements which works as the catalyst for characters. I mean, that's a tried and true sort of formula of of, of script writing of, of a narrative. There have been there have been other films that have used it. I mean, Pasolini, of course, Teorema is the, the usually the film that gets uh, gets mentioned when people talk about a visitor queue. Now, I don't want to harp on the whole idea of Mike being so prolific, but I am curious. Do you know what was his most productive year? If I'm not mistaken, that was 2001 or 2002, where he made, I think, nine, not, not all feature films, but like nine productions, like nine titles that came out in one year. As you're writing this book, it feels like this must have been such a moving target because he wasn't showing any signs of slowing down. I mean, your book came out in 2003. Yes. Did you have any fears that it was going to be out of date by the time it even hit bookshelves? Yeah, that's something I had to accept pretty much early on. And uh, my publisher, Fapres, was also sort of like, okay, let's just you know, choose choose a cutoff date. And then we decided, okay, I'm going to include everything up to the very end of 2002, uh, which kind of worked out. And then, uh, you know, just, <laughs> you know, accept the situation as it is. You're never going to be able to keep up with him if you're doing it, if you're doing it in a book format. But at the same time, I mean, you know, there's a sort of like a, a, a message I wanted to convey in there. And uh, having a cutoff date was also felt like okay. I think I think I've made my point. I could I could add more, of course, to be complete. But at the same time, you know, I stopped writing at the end of 2002, and the book came out in, if I remember correctly, June or July 2003. And it's not like people had already seen every single film he had made, you know, in in those couple of months in between my stopping stopping the writing and the book coming out. So. I guess it was okay. And a book, you know, it's going to be on the shelves for a while. So inevitably, it's going to be uh, outdated in the sense of, yeah, there's going to be new films. But the thing you're trying to do with the book, as long as that sort of like stands and you have that message getting across, I think it's okay. Tell me about the first time that you ever met Mikay. That was interesting. Uh, that was an interview, uh, again, at the Rotterdam Film Festival in 2000, uh, where I was so incredibly excited about having seen uh, at that point, they were alive and audition in that order. And that I was like, I have to interview this guy. It was a great pleasure to, that I was able to organize the interview. I got 45 minutes with uh, uh, Luke Van Houten, who was one of the best translators around when it comes to Japanese filmmakers. And it was a really great interview uh, until I got home and I realized that I had recorded 45 minutes of silence. Oh, no. And, <laughs> yes. And it turned out that I had a faulty microphone that I had borrowed from a friend. Something had gone completely wrong. So as soon as I realized this, I started writing down everything that I could remember from the interview. And I just had, so I had like a bunch of quotes that I could remember. I would say verbatim, but already it's, it's, it was translated. So it's never going to be verbatim. So it, it was uh, close enough to be truthful. And uh, so that's, that's how the first interview went. How many times have you interviewed him since then? I interviewed him for the book. 
There was like one marathon interview of that lasted eight hours. That was the very memorable one, but seven or eight times. I haven't I haven't done interviews with him for a while. It sort of feels like superfluous now. <laughs> yes, something like that, seven or eight times, I guess. And what did he think about you writing this book about him? He was really happy. And he was sort of like, uh, you know, just go ahead and do what you want to do. And uh, if you need any help, let me know. And uh, I was able to uh, get a hold of a couple of the very elusive early films of his that I couldn't find anywhere else, which I, uh, I borrowed from him <laughs> in terms of like helping out with getting hold of, of stills and such. He was he was very, very cooperative. Now, you said you are fine doing conversational Japanese. Are you having these movies translated on the fly as you're watching them? Because I know not everything, especially from his early days, have been subtitled. Yeah, a lot of it wasn't, actually. Um, so all the stuff that I bought on VHS in Japan, and we're talking like 15, 16 years ago, of course, I had no subtitles. I would ask help if I felt I needed it. Uh, someone sometimes asks people to, uh, friends to kind of double check something after I'd written it. There were no major mistakes found there. So, so much of what I was writing was about his, his style of filmmaking, his formal, like, uh, approach to things and how he would, uh, film stuff and edit stuff. That a lot of it was very visual. And of course, films, the language of cinema is not just, you know, dialogue. And a lot of that is visual. Even when, uh, in some cases where later I would be able to get hold of subtitled copies because, you know, a lot of films suddenly started coming out on DVD uh, after my book was published. And so I had the occasion to double check stuff by myself and uh, found that I was pretty much in the clear on, on all counts. What is or are the Mickey films that you go back to and might just want to watch on a Saturday afternoon? Lately, I, as you know, I do a lot of like liner notes and audio commentary for DVDs and Blu-rays. And inevitably, people ask me to do a lot of Mike films. So I kind of wait to see what kind of films they ask me for. And then I go back and revisit those. And I sort of have to go back and revisit a couple of other ones to refresh my memory on what sort of the ties with other films were. So like recently for Arrow Video, I did the Black Society trilogy, which I hadn't seen in quite a while. So there was three films to revisit and then you sort of like have to talk about a lot of the like again the connections between the movies and then after that they asked me to do dead or alive and initially that was also like a trilogy release so i had to watch all three all three of those again and now you're asking me about visit the queue so i revisited visit the queue again so that's kind of mostly how how i how i approach stuff in terms of watching his old films again what are some of your favorites of his though whether you saw them recently or the first time that you watched them Still, an absolute favorite of mine is Dead or Alive 2, because it has so many, so many aspects. Not only like stuff that's really exciting and amazing and wild, but also stuff that's really touching and heartfelt and very, very truthful. So that remains a, a film I love very much. Another film that sort of have, I love for, for very similar reasons is a Young Thug's Nostalgia, which is basically a, a basically a straight to video film from like, like back in 98. Shinjuku Triad Society. Which I like a lot because it's so, it's so gleefully twisted. And then the same thing goes for Ichi the Killer. Dead or Alive, the first Dead or Alive is a, is a film that remains special because it was the very first Mika film I ever saw. And it's one of those cases where, you know, every time you watch a movie, you have a kind of instant, instant recall of how you felt the first time you saw it. 
So that film, that film remains very dear to me for that, for that reason. Tell me about how Reagitator came about. Reagitator was essentially the idea there was I have so much material that I've written on the guy since the first book, Agitator, came out. And this is stuff that I've done, you know, for uh, like DVD liner notes or magazine articles or stuff I had written that was published in different languages besides English. That I was going like, you know, it would just be really nice to have all this stuff together in one volume. And then I went to Far Press and said, like, okay, I have all this stuff. Do you wanna? How, do you, how would you feel about feel about doing this in book form? And he said, sure, let's do it. And then, but you know, he said, like, but let's make it like a limited edition, really nice hardcover only. And that's what we decided to do. That's how it happened. The notes on Reagitator, um, the the description talks about the troubled production of sukiyaki western Django. What was the trouble with that production? They built this set out uh, way in the countryside, this huge village, like sort of like mixed western Japanese village set. There was a tropical storm that blew half the set away, basically, so they had to uh, delay production and they rebuilt the set, and of course that cost them uh, quite a bit of money. And then reschedule everybody, you know, all the, all the actors, because there are some really main major names in the film who work a lot, especially in television. So everything had to sort of be rescheduled. So I, I think that film came out costing quite a lot of money and taking a lot of time. And for uh, for a film like Skiaki Western Django, which aside from the major actors is not really a film that easily appeals to, to mass audiences, that sort of made it kind of fragile in a way. But I'm glad, you know, it was selected in competition for the Venice Film Festival. So I think it made a, it made quite, a, you know, a, a bigger impact than it otherwise would have had if it had only been released in Japan and then, you know, abroad on DVD. When I bring up Mike's name to non-cinephiles, they look at me uh, blankly. To you, what do you think is his probably most accessible or popular film in the West? I would say 13 Assassins particularly the international cut that they kind of wisely made out of that film. I personally prefer the, the, the domestic cut, essentially the director's cut, but that's just that's just personal taste, I think. I mean, the international cut they made, clearly they tried to sort of appeal to an existing image of Japanese cinema that we as Westerners have, and that was a strategy that was really quite successful because the film did really well wherever it was released. Recently, I was... Talking to a group of people, and I, and somebody asked me, hey, what's, so what do you write about? I said, oh, Japanese film. And the first thing the guy said was, oh, Kurosawa. <laughs> you know? And we were in 2017, and, and you know, Kurosawa's heyday was in the 50s and 60s. You know, there's still that sort of seven samurai Yojimbo image that people have of Japanese cinema. With 13 Assassins, that completely fits into that image, so... For most people who uh, who uh, are sort of like casual film fans, that's probably the film that they will most easily sort of like slot into, I guess. Has his reputation in Japan changed over time? Because I don't imagine that some of the V-Cinema folks were necessarily lauded when they were working in V-Cinema, but he has stuck around for, God, what, 30 years now making films? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, uh, as you say, there are not many people who directed a lot of these V-Cinema straight-to-video films who are still directing, like, fairly major releases. He's kind of been lucky in the sense that he has been, even when he was doing um, straight-to-video films, he was quite versatile in the kind of genres he did. 
And he was uh, quite lucky to have worked on quite a few films that eventually did get theatrical releases, such as like the, the, the Black Society trilogy and Dead or Alive, which were produced by Daye, which is one of the former major studios. You know, he got written about. And his films got selected for film festivals as a result as well. And if you're just doing straight-to-video stuff, uh, then your films are not going to be seen in theaters and your films basically are not going to get reviewed at all. He was uh, seen as a proper filmmaker, uh, but still sort of a marginal figure, even after he had been, you know, already had become sort of like a, a cult favorite in the West. It still took until, I guess, um, the Cannes, you know, Cannes Film Festival selection for Gozu in 2003. That was one thing that sort of elevated his status somewhat in Japan. And most of all, it was directing uh, One Missed Call, the horror movie that, that, um, that he made the year after that. And that became a huge success in Japan. And that, that sort of like made him uh, uh, you know, a legitimate A-list filmmaker. Well, you mentioned that you're doing a lot of liner notes, audio commentaries. What are some of the things that you've uh, worked on that people should check out? And what are some of the things you're working on now? A lot of it has been with uh, Arrow Video because they're so, they're so active in putting out new stuff. And especially in sort of like picking up titles that have been cult favorites for a while but have never had proper high-def re uh, releases. So, as I said, the Black Society trilogy is a, is a great example that I got to work on, do commentaries on all three, which was a, a, a lot of talking. And then Dead or Alive was a great, great pleasure to work on for the reasons I mentioned before, because it's a special film to me. I've done uh, quite a few uh, contributions to the films of Kinji Fukasaku that they have released recently. So they've been doing uh, Cops vs. Thugs and the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series box set. And they just did this movie, crazy sort of like action movie with Sony Chiba that Fukasaku directed called Doberman Cop which is a lot of fun that I wrote some liner notes for. A couple of other companies I've worked with recently, Third Window Films in the UK put out this, uh, I guess you can you couldn't really properly play them on an American Blu-ray player, but he, they did this really great box set of Toshiaki Toira, uh, his early films. This is the guy who directed uh, Blue Spring and Nine Souls. And uh, let's see, uh, the next thing that's coming up is also from the same company, is uh, Shinya Tsukamoto's The Fires on the Plane. Which is the remake of the old, yeah, the old classic, uh, very humanist sort of uh, war film. Very powerful film. That's coming out in September. Well, I do have to thank you for the book that you wrote about uh, Tsukamoto, Iron Man, the cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. Uh, I've been a fan of his for a long time, and uh, your book was fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And I have to say, too, the, the look of your books is remarkable. They are really well put together. I mean, the writing is fantastic, yes, but just the look of them, they do such a good job at Fab Press. Absolutely. I mean, there's so, <laughs> these guys have so much love for what they do that, you know, you can just, it, it, it and that you, know, you see it and you feel it in, in the books that they put out. Absolutely, yes. Are there any current Japanese filmmakers that are really exciting to you? I would say it's more that certain developments are exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm still, obviously I'm still following the people that I, I've been following for years, like Miike and Skamoto and Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who are all still doing great things. But there are interesting developments in Japanese film, which may not immediately like make you go like, ah, oh, this film is amazing. I'm going to watch everything by this director. But 
it's sort of like, you know, there's a, there's a couple of horror films coming out and they're all directed by women. Already, you know, feature films directed by women in Japan is a rarity. It's something that's been gradually changing bit by bit, uh, mostly through the indie scene and then filmmakers like Yuki Tanada, sort of like becoming professional filmmakers, kind of A-listers. And then it sort of happened in genre films as well. Then you get, you know, a couple of these films like Biolocation by uh, Mari Asato, which was excellent. And she does, she also did one of like the Juon sequels. And uh, another director, Kayako Asakura, who did a really wonderful film that has changed titles a couple of times. At first it was called It's a Beautiful Fucking Day. And it was sort of like a, a, a slasher movie with a, with a, like a, a personality switch sort of twist to it, which was kind of novel and really well done for the, the, the means that she had at her disposal. And she has since gone on to, to direct some really interesting low-budget genre films. And uh, so that's, that's like one of those developments that are happening, which are kind of exciting to follow and see where they go. I mean, some of this stuff could just fizzle out depending on what the situation in the market is. You know, if you're, if you're doing low budget horror films, it's, it's not likely there's going to be a sort of like a big budget continuation of that. And there's just one problem is there's a huge gap now in Japanese filmmaking, which, well, it's not unique to Japanese filmmaking, but it's like it's either huge budgets or no budgets. You know, there's nothing in between anymore. And uh, the in-between is where people like Mike used to work doing all these straight-to-video films that used to be made for, say, like half a million US dollars to up to 800,000 or something. And that was shot in two weeks. And uh, for like 15 to 20 years, there were so many great movies coming out of that sector. But it's unfortunately... As the video market collapsed in the early 2000s, um, those movies also went with it. And I know that Midnight Eye isn't around anymore. Are you still writing for different outlets? Most of my writing these days is either my own book projects, larger projects, or it's uh, like liner notes for DVD and Blu-ray. I don't do magazine writing all that often anymore. What's your next book going to be? I just spent a couple of years researching the, the V-Cinema straight-to-video markets, and... Uh, yeah, to really like get into the like the nitty gritty of it and uh, the history of how this how this sort of came into into being, and especially how it was possible for people like Mike and Kurosawa and uh, like Shinji Aoyama, who are filmmakers who are internationally lauded. You know, they're like world cinema auteurs now, and their films go to Cannes every year. Um, and if they don't go to Cannes, they go to Venice. Yeah, but they all have this background of making. Lots of these straight-to-video movies, which had no... These movies and the people that sort of financed them and, and released them had no artistic ambition whatsoever. They just wanted to make money. And so what the big question for me was, you know, if it was such a like a cash grab sort of strategy, how was it possible that it nevertheless delivered these filmmakers that are now, you know, in, admired internationally? Yeah, so that was a big question that, that drove that project. Do you have uh, any release date or anything for that? Uh, nothing set yet, but I hope next year, 2018. Yeah. Tom Mess, thank you so much for your time, sir. You're very welcome. This was a real pleasure talking with you. Same thing, same thing.
All right, we are back, and we are talking about Visitor Q. I have to admit, I haven't seen any of those recent films. I know they showed 13 Assassins down at the Detroit Film Theater, and I really wanted to see it on the big screen, but unfortunately I missed that opportunity. I don't think I've seen a Mike film presented properly since either uh, Sukiyaki Western Django uh, so yes, Tarantino was in two Django films, uh, just put that in your pipe and smoke it, or his remake of Zatoichi. I think, actually, those were both, again, to speak to Mike, you have to say, these were both released in 2007, as well as three or four more other films. But he has definitely slowed down after that. He is going down to two films a year. Uh, take that, Terrence Malick. We mentioned before uh, Pasolini's Terrorama, and there are definitely a lot of similarities between Visitor Q and Terrorama. And I have to say, this was a first-time watch for me as well. This was kind of a threefer for me, that I hadn't seen this movie. I hadn't seen Sitcom, which we'll talk about in a bit, and I hadn't seen Visitor Q. So it was really fun to watch these movies back-to-back-to-back and pick up a lot of the similarities and differences between them. And, I mean, there's even other films that these movies kind of play with. But Teorama, what an interesting film, and what an interesting structure, too, that it's really kind of a movie in two halves. And, again, we have, I guess, he's still kind of a catalyst, but it's basically the way that Teorama had been described to me was that the devil visits a house in Italy and seduces everyone in the house and then leaves and they're all fucked up afterwards. That's one way to interpret this film, but that's not necessarily the way that I took it after I watched this. That is totally wrong. <laughs> that That is an astonishingly stupid reading of this film. I'm astonished that anyone would be allowed to say that in print. Let's just hope this was on the internet. No, that, that really is, that's, that's extraordinary. I'm sure we'll get to all the reasons that that is wrong in the next few minutes. I'm, I'm speechless. That was certainly not my interpretation of the film, but Mike, like you, these, these were all first time watches for me as well. So I had kind of the same experience of discovering all of them and, and, and their differences, but also the kind of striking similarities between them in terms of, you know, a stranger visiting upon a family and the big difference in terms of Teorama was sort of that as opposed to visitor Q wherein the outsider ends up sort of reuniting the family by igniting a spark within them and forcing them to connect with one another by sort of becoming a surrogate family member for a time and Teorama, I guess because he interacts with, each member almost on an individual basis and ends up sort of driving them apart that the, the narratives are different, even though they are kind of built out of the same framework. The crucial difference between the, the two films is that in Teorama, Emilia, the servant and Lucia, the mother played by Silvani, uh, Silvana Mangano are separate characters and in the Japanese context of visitor Q, they have to be the same character. And the fact that the entire narrative 
has to turn around this one character who is a condensation of two of the most important characters in Teorema. I think it gives it a completely different arc and a completely different theme and a completely different set of uh, menu choices from which it can uh, pick a you know, sort of resolution and conclusion. I saw Teorema kind of in an art theater, like in college, maybe back in the early 80s or something like that. And when I watched it again for this uh, for this episode, I was astonished at how the film went on after The Visitor, played by Terrence Stamp, left. He is such an extraordinarily charismatic visual and sexual presence in the film. That was kind of all I'd remembered about it. Like, I remembered he came to the family, and I remembered all these cool seduction scenes and stuff. And then, well, eventually the family kind of, you know, devolved after that. But that's, as, as you said, Mike, it's a film in two parts. It's almost two, two films uh, entirely. And, and um, uh, the, 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 the truly subversive elements of these individual seductions and the consequences that they play in the, in the lives and the arcs of all of these uh, four characters, let's see, Paolo the father, Lucia the mother, Odessa the daughter, Pietro the Sun and Amelia, that's five characters. Anyway, uh, you know, I think it's in many respects a much more uh, subversive film than than Visitor Q in some way, which, as you point out, does posit this general regeneration or reconstitution of the family at a higher level by the end. You talk about how the housekeeper and the mother character are two very distinct characters in this by the end of it, they are kind of, you know, we talk about the Madonna whore complex and how so many women are portrayed as either Madonna or whore. And he kind of drives those two women into being a literal saint and a, she doesn't take money, but just she cruises around Milan looking for uh, strange uh, from these young men basically trying to recapture the relationship that she had with the Terrence Stamp character, even though we don't necessarily, there's a lot of implied stuff in Teorama. Now, this was 68, so there are so many moments in here where I'm just shocked that there isn't male or female nudity, especially male nudity. They go to great lengths to hide male nudity in this film, and I'm just like, wow, in a few years, I don't think we would necessarily care about that but with this one there are so many like interesting framings and stuff especially the end sequence which we'll definitely talk about but it's just like oh yeah you you whatever you do do not show <laughs> well if you want to see uh, Pasolini giving a long lingering look at cock including underage cock uh, check out Salo that's the one that immediately sprang to mind where it's just like I'm having a hard time other than the bourgeoisie thinking of anyone wearing clothes in that movie. <laughs> but yeah, this one uh, made, what, eight years prior uh, when Pasolini was just a little pipsqueak and he's making this movie. And you're right as far as the very distinct stories that we have, so much so that even though we're all in the same house at the beginning of the film, these five characters plus Terrence Stamp are all living under the same roof, this palatial roof, by the way, 
that they rarely interact with one another. There are very few scenes where we get all of the family members together, and usually we might get one or two, maybe three at the most, interacting with one another, and usually Terrence Stamp is amongst them. All of these amazing scenes of looking and longing and uh, the the way that the daughter interacts with Stamp and the attention that she pays to his crotch seduction scene, quote-unquote, between him and the son. I mean, each one of these things takes, takes place in a very discreet one-on-one kind of thing. The, oh, God, the, the, the first seduction, the uh, one with the housekeeper, the way that she runs back and forth between the house and him and just keeps going back and forth. And there's so much running to the house. This is probably the most running I've seen in a movie since The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner because they are just constantly trotting back and forth. And I guess it's like, well, why walk when you can run? And the the women do a lot of running. Especially if there's an oven to stick your head in at the end of you know, one of the runs, right? <laughs> That's that's a finish line to, to long for, right? In that second half of the film, again, these are very, very discreet stories. We are really, I mean, after The Stranger Leaves, after, um, I think it's Emilio is Terrence Stamp's name, after he leaves, we are almost, I, I think there's a little bit of family together, but then after that, I mean, we are purely cross-cutting between these stories. I mean, the housekeeper leaves the house the son leaves the house the father we see him mostly on his own and then i love that there's this is 1968 folks i've talked about the political upheaval of 1968 a lot on on this show especially when it comes to france but italy there was a lot of stuff going on too and that there's this real marxist bent to this film with the father giving the factory over to the workers I was just so happy that Marxism plays a role. Well, and the daughter just totally checks out and becomes completely catatonic, which is really remarkable to me. I mean, just amazing. She tries to reconstruct where the stranger had lounged in the yard so so she could lie down where he had recumbently lounged in the in the 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 lawn chair and she becomes frustrated because she can't quite determine you know you know down to the inch where he was which is a whole crawling around in the dirt trying to figure out exactly where he was i mean she measures she does this what three times she does it she paces it off she crawls it off and then she uses a measuring tape to try to find out exactly where he was. I mean, she is desperate. If you think about the the communion of saints and and uh, the you know American pilgrims, still you know Christian pilgrims from the world, and go to you know the so called Via Dolorosa, where they're you know convinced you know Jesus dragged the cross. Of course, you know we don't know that. And and so that's one of those strange uh, and really beautiful things that that Pasolini came to specialize in this 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 uniting of the sacred and the profane that the uh, uh, the the longed for erotic memory of this lover and the uh, the desire to to walk where the feet of the saints have trod is something that he is constantly subverting uh, in many, many ways in many, many parts of the film in some of the art historical allusions and some of the biblical uh, 
verses that are quote quoted and all that. I said that somebody interpreted him as the devil or a demon, and really there's this kind of beatification of him by the family. I mean, he is just this this figure upon which they hoist so many things, and he's just at the end of the day, he almost is this just pure lust. And if anybody is going to portray pure lust, it is a 1968 Terrence Stamp. Thank you very much. And those piercing blue eyes that he has, is just and the the gaunt cheeks, right? I mean, I mean, he's 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 like a figure out of a 17th century Baroque painting. That those that 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 when he's recumbent and shirtless, and those blue eyes are looking off, and his cheeks are sunken, he's exactly uh, he's iconic, literally in the classic sense of the word. By the way, Mike, you hipped us to the really, really great Cock Lorber uh, Cook Cock Lorber uh, DVD and Blu-ray that has a fantastic uh, commentary by Robert Gordon of Cambridge University, who really gives a tremendous amount of information about the art historical and and iconographic allusions that that pepper the film and really give it uh, a whole sort of secondary chain of meaning and associations. And I'd really, really encourage the listeners to go out and pick up that DVD or Blu-ray because the commentary is really extraordinary. And there's so much to it that I felt kind of bad for the commentator because he's almost breathless at times just trying to keep up with the movie. A movie that kind of takes its time to get places is so rich with so many things that he is just rattling off stuff all throughout this movie. I really appreciated that. I was, I always hate when I will listen to a commentary track and just get those long stretches where it's almost like they forget that they're giving commentary and they just watch the movie. And it's like, are you going to, are you still there? Are you going to say something? Tim Lucas is a master of always finding something interesting to say on every second of the, of the commentary track. If you ever get a chance to listen to any of his commentary on another kind of Italian film of the fifties and sixties, I think you'll, you'll find that that's, that's kind of a master class on how to do that. My favorite commentaries are the Arnold Schwarzenegger commentaries where he just goes, Oh, look at that. Yeah. I remember that. You know, the movie begins as a silent film. We go through this sort of documentary footage and then we go to this, this, this blasted desert heat, desert heat that we later find out at the end of the film is Mount Etna. It's a sort of volcanic, you know, desert. And, and in order to match the colors of that, we move into this sepia tone, bit of exposition where we introduce all the characters and it's a silent film, you know, like, like the, the characters are just sort of speaking, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, you know, we, we get this, this visual introduction to them and they're, and they're speaking and we don't hear what they're saying. And then there's music and stuff like that. That always struck me as a really kind of interesting precursor to the way that visitor cube begins with that home video footage that there, there's this effort, in Terima from the very, very beginning to have this representational distance from that introduction to all of these characters into uh, our sort of moving into that luminous, saturated color of the of the landscapes and of the the life of bourgeois splendor that they that they lead. 
And as we, you know, go on through the the movie, it kind of slows down, like it gets slower and slower and more more lyrical as we as we move along, uh, almost drawing attention to the fact that you know what we're seeing is this deliberately composed and presented composition, you know, with all the allusions to art history. One of my favorite bits is is where the uh, the visitor and Piero, the son, or uh, Pietro, rather, uh, the son, are are sort of sitting on the bed together, and there's a sort of um, a comic book blow up behind the two of them that says "Seize him," which I just for some reason it made me smile. Just to clarify, I, I said that Pasolini was just a little baby when he made this. No, he was actually 48 years old, I think, at the time. So he's actually older than I am at the moment. And this was interesting, too, because this is, I mean, he had written screenplays beforehand. He had written plays. He'd written novels. And I think this was actually based upon one of his uh, novels. So he had definitely thought this through quite a bit beforehand. But, yeah, he started... Uh, officially in films around the early 60s. He ended, unfortunately, because he was assassinated in 1975. So this one fits right about the middle of his film career. And that he had that audacity to start this off as a silent film, to start it off in these mute colors. I mean, so fascinating. This guy, he really played with the medium and there's a reason why we're still talking about Pasolini films so many years after his untimely demise because he was such a master of the craft made very few films but each one of them is very very striking well the casting of this film is really extraordinary and one of his most subversive elements you know the father uh, Paolo is played by Massimo Girotti who was the uh, the sort of studly outsider uh, seductor in uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice of Ossessioni the, the Visconti film made during the fascist era and he played these these sort of uh, uh, strong silent muscular uh, athletic uh, male leads in, in a lot of films in the 50s and the early 60s and Silvana Magana was uh, who plays uh, the mother was actually the first big Italian female movie star that crossed over in the U.S. I mean, she was later uh, surpassed by Gina Lola Brigida and Sophia Loren. But when Bitter Rice came out in the U.S., I think it was released in Italy in 1949, and it was uh, released here in 1950. She was sort of touted in the American press, certainly in the American movie trade press, as capital T, like the next major female international star. And the the idea, the 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 chutzpah, uh, uh, the the verve with which uh, Pasolini was able to cast these icons of heterosexuality into a, a subversive story like this is really extraordinary. I mean, I think both of them were uh, on a, a downward, the downward side of their career. Uh, uh, Mike, did you check the uh, the IMDb credits for Silvana Mangano? Do you know what her last uh, credit was? Oh, do I ever. She was Reverend Mother Romalo in Dune. Close, but no. She is a restaurant onlooker splattered with brain and worms in the scene in Slugs <laughs> where the guy's head explodes. But according to IMDb, she is uncredited. 
Yeah, I think we could see a film like Teorema being relatively halfway between bitter rice and the worm splattered lady in slugs, maybe. <laughs> she is so striking in this film. I mean, a little little excessive on the eye makeup, but I know that was the style back then. She just is gorgeous to look at. And I have to say that and I'm gonna have to do a screen grab and and see if my theory is correct, but uh, Amelia, uh, played by Laura Beth, the, the maid, she reminds me of Bernadette from Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So she reminds me of the older, dragged-out version of Terrence Stamp. And I have to do a comparison of these two faces because there are so many times – I love the way that Pasolini shoots this. There are so many times, especially when she's back in her village, where she's just looking dead at camera – and I'm just like, okay, I have to find a, a close-up of Bernadette and do like a half and half and see how their faces line up. Because she doesn't have those blue eyes of Terrence Stamp, but she has very striking features for somebody who probably should be a little bit more schlubby in this movie. I love Pietro uh, becoming an artist, right? Having been awakened, his sort of creative impulse is being awakened by uh, by you know essentially his uh, discovering his gay identity. And he goes to... Uh, he uh, he goes uh, to uh, artist Garrett. I don't know if it's Trastevere in Rome or if it's just another part of of Milan. And he he uh, festoons his his studio with all of these uh, anarchist and communist uh, uh, slogans. And he has the blank canvas and he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he just pisses all over it, which certainly uh, reminded me of Visitor Q on a number of levels. <laughs> well, this whole idea of the 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 quote unquote perfect family where we've got mom, dad, brother, sister, you know, just like make fucking stickers out of them and slap them on the back of your minivan kind of thing. And then you've got the maid in there as well. And the whole idea of the son coming out being quote unquote turned gay or realizing that he's gay via the presence of this outsider. That is so common it's just amazing how many movies play with that but the one that really got me was just the the similarities between teorama and visitor q and then francois ozon's uh sitcom and sitcom i i almost wish that he had played with the form a little bit more and actually made it more like a sitcom sitcom is not a, a word that is native to french and this is not the French, you know, the, this is not the English translation of the French title. The French title was sitcom. And I was really kind of hoping that he would play this out more like, you know, the Foucault family or the, the way that uh, the, the parody scene in Natural Born Killers or something like play with the form. And I think that he had originally thought about making sitcom into three episodes because it, it, it plays with that. I mean, this is like, married with children goes to hell kind of thing and that the visitor is not someone beautiful like Terrence Stamp or this rock god like Visitor Q that it is a white laboratory rat that the father brings home and it is the rat that acts as this uh, for the rest of the family to change is just remarkable and i have to say that i was very amused at sitcom and i was very happy to see that and then again to see that in situ with these other two films i was just like wow i mean we even have the title cards now they're not 
you know, have you ever uh, had sex with your dad? There are these kind of, you know, three months ago, a month later, and then we're, we're back to the story. But to use the title cards, to have these breaks in here, and really to tie these three episodes together, and even to do a cold open, <laughs> you know, you would expect. And even he makes it very theatrical. It's funny, we just talked about, talked about The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which opened with red curtains, and this movie does the same thing. But just, uh, yeah, fantastic to see the parallels with all these stories. Sitcom was actually, of the three films that I watched for this podcast, I think Sitcom was the one that I responded to the most. And I think that is just a sensibility thing. Um, I'm an Ozon fan, and I had never seen this film. And so uh, it was really a joy kind of watching him start out. And I'm in complete agreement that had he had he played with the form a little bit more, I think the certainly the satire would have been stronger, but I, I'm not even positive that that's what he's attempting to satirize. So maybe it's just a poor choice of title because maybe that would have just been a little bit too on the nose, but yeah, you had, you had sent along um, another piece and it was called family portrait, right? Um, Shooting, um, shooting the family. Shooting the family. Yeah. By uh, uh, John Kuhleman. And he points out that the outsider or that, you know, the, the visitor cue of sitcom is the son that the son's sort of transformation. And when he announces that he's homosexual, that he's essentially the catalyst for the change in the family. But Mike, I'm with you that it's the rat and, and each of the interactions that the family has with the rat is much more like the Terrence stamp stuff in, in Teorema. Um, which is fascinating that Ozan was like, yeah, I'll do Tayrama, but recast Terrence Stamp with a white rat. Yeah, I, I, I really was a fan of this movie. Well, you know, the rat in a laboratory experiment is the dependent variable. You know, right. that, that's the, that you, you observe the effect that whatever you're changing dependent variable has on the rat. So in a film like sitcom, the rat becomes as much a double of the family, a sort of doppelganger this white screen, you know, that, you know, that, that the family becomes this succession of, of white laboratory rats in this experiment that the filmmaker, uh, uh, runs when the sun comes out as gay. And I, and I think that's absolutely, uh, correct. I mean, I, I think the, that, that the, the changing role of the sun and the way that, all of the relationships in the family reconfigure themselves around the son's growing self-awareness is exactly what happens as in visitor Q, except with the mother that, right. that really, uh, you know, the, the outside visitor can't change everything, right? That's, that's kind of not a, that's not a Western style dramatic arc that, that really there's a, there's a level of, of intrinsic, autonomy that the characters are supposed to have, you know, what the Greeks saying of character is destiny. Right. And, and so the, the, the outsider can't be a person who just 
comes in and and moves the chess pieces around, right? That that he the the visitor has to destabilize all of the relationships around them. And Mike, you you mentioned uh, just in some of your show notes uh, about uh, a lot of films that do a lot other films that do this. But do you say from Drowning, right, where the homeless guy comes in and is taken in by the family and drastically reorients you know everyone around him? And you know I just put a little note next to it. So how about rules of the game, which is, you know, film from Renoir from just a couple of years later that does exactly the same thing. Uh, and so by the time we get to 1998, kind of, it might as well be a rat really. It, the, 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 <laughs> that character is, that character is inert. And what we're there to observe is the, is the changes that the introduction of this variable wreaks on this closed system. You know, and plus, you know, rats are funny, you know, I mean, just like, like, like just write down all the movies and stories and TV episodes that center on a rat and you are likely to find that mirth will soon ensue. Not only is the rat an outsider to this family, but we're introduced almost at the same time as we're introduced to this rat to the maid. Now, this is a French family, very, very French. You can't get more French than this family. And then you have this Spanish maid. They make kind of a big deal that she's Spanish. And then her boyfriend from, is it Cameroon? So they are also both very much outsiders, the boyfriend or the husband, especially because of his skin color. And then also that He's also gay. He seems much more interested in the son than he actually does in his own wife, whereas the wife seems much more, the maid-slash-wife is more interested in the boyfriend of the daughter. God, these relationships. Uh, I mean, that um, there, there's got to be a name for that whole like uh, uh, tit-fucking thing. I mean, a better name than that. But that scene is pretty remarkable as well. I mean, just the uh, the... The relationships of this more than sitcom, I would say soap opera is what this reminds me a lot of just with these relationships happening, but that the rat is an outsider and that these two foreigners and I put that, I mean, it's I can't put it in quotations because they are foreigners, but their foreignness is emphasized by the, the way that this plot plays out. And if anything, the way that the son, that when he comes out, he becomes kind of foreign to the rest of this as well. He is an outsider by his sexuality. He is not then this, uh, I can't say apple pie, this, uh, this French croissant, uh, kind of, uh, idyllic picture. I mean, he is no longer, um, in the typical fashion of those four stick figures on the back of your minivan, you know, the, uh, at the time, uh, people might have gone out and peeled his sticker off. He might have been dead to the family. I'm glad that he's not, though his mother goes to extremes to try to sway him back to the other team, which I'm surprised, you know, there was, there was, uh, some, uh, this again is great that we have this incest theme to this. Not only do we have incest when it comes to the mother and the son, and of course we've talked about the father and the daughter in Visitor Q, we have it with the mother and the son, but then there's also kind of some weird incestuous overtones almost by casting choices when it comes to the brother and the sister taking a bath together because they're actually played by real life siblings. Well, you know, the whole idea of of uh, Maria and Abdu being being foreigners is is 
an important political subtext to the film because the, the French bourgeois, the French middle class could not exist without the labor of these grossly underpaid immigrant domestics and uh, uh, city workers and, and, and all this other stuff. That, so the, the world of bourgeois splendor that, that we see in films like uh, Teorama and sitcom, they, they're, they're really they're predicated on this, this labor of people who were, quote-unquote, not French. And one of the things that I find particularly piquant and amusing about both uh, Teorama and sitcom is this deft insight into the rituals of disavowing homosexuality that that whenever you know i'm I'm sure that abdu is the only gay gym teacher ever in the history of the world right and and uh, there, there are those amazing scenes in Teorema with with the visitor and the father where they're racing the car to see who can go make it go the fastest. And then they're shadow boxing together. And there's that whole ritual of the son and the visitor disrobing together and and all that stuff that that when when men are together they have to go through these intricate rituals to convince each other that they're not homos on the make and if they are experiencing desire for each other then that adds an additional layer of social rituals that they have to negotiate in order for the desire to be revealed and acted upon and i think the the scenes between uh the son and the visitor and the father and the visitor in um uh in Teorema and the scenes between uh abu and the the son uh uh uh, Nicola in in sitcom. I think I think those are some of the most satirically piquant and accurate moments in either of those films. We we can talk about their levels of excess at various points, but I mean I really think that those are very very nicely observed little bits of social comedy. At the end of the film, it's really the father that ends up being the villain in in sitcom we talked about kind of the magical realism of visitor q with the breast milk and just the i mean of course women lactate and some can lactate a lot but enough to cover the floor uh, a few inches deep with breast milk and and vaginal secretions um that would be really talented but that that level of magical realism is also kind of there in sitcom where not only does the, the father uh, eventually kills the rat. It makes it explode in a microwave and eats the rat and then becomes the rat. And that scene, I mean, it's, it's not as, uh, it's not as well done as the giant uh, crab attacking divine in multiple maniacs, but it's up there. It's definitely up there. And I like that the way that they <laughs> cut in real rat, with the kind of stuffed rat, it almost reminded me of Night of the Lincoln a little bit. Was it a giant crab or was it a giant lobster? There's another film I need to go back and rewatch. Oh, that is a rough one. Um, it again, it, it you know, it makes sort of the the metaphor of the film very literal because throughout the movie, the father is sort of 
the villain of the film even before he shoots and kills. I mean, obviously, that is how the movie opens as well. But before we get that sequence of him shooting and killing his family and then eating the rat and becoming the rat and becoming the villain, he is so removed. He is sort of what the kids are sometimes rebelling against. He is perhaps what is leaving his wife sexually unfulfilled. And so there's similarities there too, I think with visitor Q in terms of the kind of failed role of the father. Um, it's not as much, I think about a kind of aggressive masculinity as it is in visitor Q because of sort of the, the bourgeois, approach that Ozan takes to the family unit. Um, so it's not required that the father be this sort of aggressively masculine character, but his disinterest, his level of removal from the family is, is a big part of what is causing that destabilization. And so for him to become the rat that is literally in the film, what is causing the destabilization, you know, just kind of brings the whole thing full circle, which I thought was really cool. Well, but he's the lab rat. He's the thing that changes. He's the dependent variable that all of the the world around him, his microcosm has changed and he becomes the rat that he's he's basically the subject of the experiment, as it were. If we imagine that the movie, the lab rat is a sort of central metaphor for what happens when you take this microcosm of the family and make these changes to it. He's the guy we watch become what he must become. And, of course, it's completely irredeemable. I mean, at least in Visitor Q, he he resigns himself to his essential dependence and infantilism. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, but yes, I mean, I I totally agree that that he really becomes the centerpiece of the film uh, and that and that if we watch the film a second time, we can see him pushing a lot of these forces in the family toward fragmentation and violence and destabilization. Yeah, I, I wanted to take it back to what you were talking about, Kevin, when it came to the whole idea of these different genres that uh, Visitor Q was playing with, you know, the salaryman film, the uh, the desperate woman who turns to uh, prostitution, all of these kind of things. There's also really kind of a subgenre of Japanese films of these families under duress and the way that uh, they can go to extremes. You know, the one thing that I, I noted was that there's some similarities here uh, between Visitor Q and um, Ishii's, uh, Sogo Ishii's um, The Crazy Family from 1984. And then, it, I mean, this was, so it, it's a, it, that would make a fantastic double feature, I have to say. Uh, it's kind of tough to find that one, at least at one point. Mm-hmm. I think it was tough to find. I'm not sure about today, but to find it with subtitles, you were really fortunate to be able to do that. Um, and then, uh, I mean, this the, the year that Visitor Q came out, uh, 2001, was a big, big year for Mike. Now, um, when we talk to Tom Mess, he does talk about how family is one of those things. Uh, those motifs that he comes back to that uh, um, Mika comes back to often. And in 2001, he had the the family and family two that he released. And then he had the other film that he released that I kind of didn't mention before, which is actually my favorite uh, Takeshi Mika film, which is the happiness of the Katakuris. And I haven't seen The Quiet Family, which apparently, now The Quiet Family, I believe, was a Korean film, not a Japanese film. 
that's one I've been looking for with subtitles for a long time. Now, I haven't looked recently, but when I was looking, I don't know, early 2000s, that one, I have a... I have a VCD of it, uh, but it doesn't have subtitles to it, so I haven't watched it yet. So I'll go out and I'll see if I can find it uh, with subs now after all these years. But And Happiness of the Categories is, it might be the only musical that Mike has done, but it is definitely a, a, a musical, and it is fantastic. There's almost this Jan Svankmeyer stop-motion um uh, animation or claymation that happens during it. Again, there's so many people that are murdered and the family is such an important part of it. Um, it is, uh, like I said, that is my favorite Mickey. If I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch one Mickey film, it's going to be that one. So even though we've been talking about Visitor Q for two hours, I have to say if you are curious about Mickey, that that was my entree into his work and i've never seen it topped you guys might have others that you're you know you feel strongly about but for me that's the one that i go to and that's the one i would recommend it and that's not going to show up on the most shocking list uh by any stretch of imagination but it has some great moments well that whole plot element of the family bonding by disposing of the bodies that that's clearly there in katakuri's and it's explicitly there in the source film uh, the quiet family. Uh, we're talking about all these families here. Uh, uh, the, one of the really cool things about uh, the crazy family is is it's a, a parody of an Ozu film. That that the way the the scenes are laid out and the basic plots and the way the shots are blocked and everything. Uh, and and Visitor Q, along with a lot of. Uh, Mikkei's films are, are loaded with these allusions to uh, classic Japanese films. I think uh, Visitor Q is uh, uh, there's a, a lot of allusions to uh, Naruse and and Imamura and Ozu. But if you look at Audition, there are entire like shots in there that are completely like riffs on 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 Ozu stuff. So uh, that there's a there's a real sense in which he is self consciously pulling out these elements that Japanese audiences would instantly see. And that are kind of, kind of a tough, a tough sightline for us, you know? Uh, uh, but I, I think you're, I think it's absolutely true that, that, that Katakuri's was, I think that was perhaps his first big film festival success. Am I, if, if, uh, uh, if Mez was here, he could he could answer that. Uh, but I think that a lot of the cool stuff from his movies since then you know, work variations on that. Well, I know that by that time, uh, other films that I was very familiar with as far as their names, like The Dead or Alive came out in 1999, Salaryman Kintaro was 99, uh, Silver, Lee Lines, Blues Harp was 98, Bird People China was 98, but also in 2001 was the other movie that tends to get listed on those most shocking lists, which is Ichi the Killer. And to be able to go from Ichi the Killer to the happiness of the categories within a matter of months, or if not weeks, is pretty remarkable. I still think Ichi the Killer is about too long by half. I struggle with that one. I, I think I think he could have used an, a, a a sort of unit producer, you know, like Hal B. Wallace or someone to re- rein him in on that one. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, it's again, it's it's a side of Mike that I respond to less. Um, and Visitor Q 
isn't doing the same kind of gross out stuff in terms of the gore, but visitor Q, I think has as demented as it is a certain heart to it by the end. And you alluded to it earlier in terms of the power of this maternal figure and, um, you know, her, her ability to feed a family, to fix the problems, you know, those kinds of things. And Ichi is to me just a little bit shocking for shocking's sake. So I, I've seen it once. That was enough. You know, I'm good. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Streamlined Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure. Akira. We're going to stick around in Japan for a little bit, and we'll be back next week with a discussion of Akira. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kevin and Patrick. So, Patrick, what is the haps over at F This Movie, sir? Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, Fthismovie.net is where you can read some of my writing, and we have a podcast that comes out usually on Wednesdays. Um, And uh, things are good over there. What kind of stuff are you covering over the next little bit, do you know? I wish I, you know, you plan out like a year in advance. I sometimes am up to the night before uh, <laughs> where I don't know what tomorrow's show is going to be. Um, but we have, uh, you know, recently we've done episodes on Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. Um, we just did an episode on horror films of the 2000s that we think will eventually become uh, cult classics, uh, director Jackson Stewart was just on talking about Italian horror films. So we, we've been all over the place. Very cool. I like it. And how about you, Kevin? How are things going for you and all your projects? I'm working on this project that has no end. And it used to be called From Beavis and Butthead to Joe the Plumber, Dumb White Guy Politics and Culture in America. Then it was called From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Dumb White Guy, Politics and Culture in America. Now its working title is From Beavis and Butthead to the Deplorables, Dumb White (laughs) Guy, Culture and Politics in America. And I'm trying to make progress on it, but, you know, the last chapter just gets weirder all the time. Uh, So, you know, who knows? Who knows what that thing's going to look like when it's done? Uh, uh, Tom S. mentioned in his his interview that, that when... By the time the his Mike book came out, Mike had 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 written had had made like seven new films, right? So you know who who knows what the dumb white guys are going to be up to, uh, you know, in in the time that I have left to finish this thing. But that's going really well, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. I'm also very excited 
that in the fall, I have an opportunity to teach my uh, seminar on feminism and pornographic cinema again. And I'm really looking forward to showcasing a lot of great, great uh, writing on feminism and pornography that's come out in the last few years. Uh, and I have uh, some wonderful guests coming uh, to visit the class, uh, including uh, the extraordinary Ms. Annette Haven, who typically doesn't do this sort of thing anymore. So I'm pouring a lot of energy into what I hope is going to be a really, really exciting and interesting uh, semester for my students. And where can folks uh, keep up with you? You can find me at my uh, blogs. You can find me at uh, notandgenderblogspot.com. I'm sure that you will uh, put that in the show notes. It's my blog on gender and sexuality in the cinema and also the crawling eye blogspot.com, which is my uh, which is my blog on cult media, international cult media. I'm currently working on a piece um, there on the resurgence of female gothic elements in the horror film. I'm talking about a couple of recent films, including, of course, Get Out. So watch for that soon. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode, including all those links. You can go over to Kevin's blog, go over to Patrick's website, check out the podcast. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.